All right, well, today we continue in our summer sermon series. It's uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, we went there. Uh, And the sermon series is titled Life Under the Sun. There's many people who look at the book of Ecclesiastes and they scratch their heads and they say, what's the purpose? What's the use of this book? It seems to be so downcast, so so melancholy. What, what are we to take from it? Does it have any benefit for us today? And I would say yes, it has great benefit for us today. As we think about how we are beginning to open back up post-COVID, everybody's leaning in with all excitement to get their lives back to normal again. We just can't wait to get back to normal. And the book of Ecclesiastes says, don't be so quick. <laughs> Is that really what God wants for you. So this morning, we are on our fourth sermon in this series. If you missed the first three, you're free to listen to them online. But in these first three sermons, we sat under the instruction of one who calls himself the preacher or teacher, the Koheleth, one who conveys to the covenant people of God the the very life and wisdom of King Solomon. And over these past weeks, he's helped us to see that life under the sun can never, ever really begin to fully satisfy us. And yet, for some reason, we chase after money and sex and riches like there's no tomorrow. Today, the preacher pivots from the the fruitlessness of these paths that we pursue to show us how the world itself actually pursues us. Our sermon today is titled, life in a dog-eat-dog world. Now, when I say life in a dog-eat-dog world, what thoughts come to mind? And and when you're in the throes of this dog-eat-dog life, which no doubt you are, where do you turn to for relief? Our text is Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 16, and we're going to read up through chapter 4, verse 6. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man And what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better than both, is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. 
The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and the striving after the wind. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this word um, has been treasured in your scriptures for hundreds of years, and it's intimately useful and important for our lives today. May we glean from this text what you would have us. May we see more fully with, with eyes of compassion what is going on in this world. May we reject it, and may we rest in you, we pray. Amen. Well, there's a movie that came out in 1991. Maybe you've seen it. It's starring Danny Glover, Kevin Klein, and, and Steve Martin. It's called Grand Canyon. Maybe you saw that. I don't know. Maybe it's on Netflix. I don't know. Kevin Klein's character, Mac, is an Im immigration attorney, and Mac is stuck in the traffic in L.A., so he decides to exit the freeway to maybe find a, a shortcut, but his car breaks down in a ghetto neighborhood, and it starts to get dark. Soon he's surrounded by gangsters, when Danny Glover's character, Simon, the tow truck driver, finally arrives, a gangster named Rockstar has a gun at Mac's head. Simon tries to reason with the thugs so that they will go away. Here's what he says. Listen. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that yet. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. Simon's assessment of the human predicament is right on, and, and you felt it, haven't you? Everything is supposed to be different than it is. There is discord. There is corruption within the very fabric of the universe every day of our lives. It's unavoidable. You cannot go on vacation without something threatening to disrupt your happiness. You cannot go to the doctor without fear of what might be said. And add to that, everybody's lives are lived with their own self-interest at heart, not yours, right? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's the world we live in. But deep down inside, do we not long for a different world? Cornelius Plantiga, in his great book, it's on our book table, I believe, it's titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Is it back there, Trish? Yep. She can't see it. All right. She turned around like she was looking for it. He describes, Plantiga describes what we long for. It's a Hebrew word called shalom. Now, we translate that word shalom with the word peace, but shalom means far more than just a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, listen, the shalom means universal flourishing, completeness, wholeness, and delight. It's the webbing together of God and human beings and all creation in justice and fulfillment and in well-being. It's the flourishing of all things without any hindrance whatsoever. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And if we're honest, shalom is really what we long for. 
Plantinga writes that the world we live in, though, has experienced a vandalism of shalom. What a great way to describe the world. Sin has entered into God's good creation, and we now live in a dog-eat-dog world. And our tendency, right, can either be to dive in, full head of steam, both hands out, looking for things in this dog-eat-dog world. Or we can, what, be pressed in upon by this world. We can become anxious and despondent and depressed. But there's a third way that the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to, uh, to develop, help us develop a longing for. It's the way of the gospel. In our passage this morning, the teacher, the preacher, points us to this dog-eat-dog world that we live in, and he helps us to see the three areas in particular, injustice, oppression, and greed. And as we move through the text, the teacher is going to provide us both an insight and an action to ponder. So the first insight he points us to is the prevalence of injustice. This past week, I searched Amazon.com for children's books that had the title of either That's Not Fair or It's Not Fair. And do you know how many books I found? At least 31 titles. Why so many children's books that address the lack of fairness? I think you know the answer. It's a lesson we all must learn. When a child on the playground shouts, that's not fair, he or she is saying that an injustice has taken place. It was my turn and you took it. And sadly, injustice clings to us for the rest of our lives. The preacher observes the prevalence of injustice in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, if you remember from our previous sermons, this phrase, under the sun, describes the futility of the secular life lived on earth, under the sun, apart from God. In verse 16, the preacher looks at the highest places in the land, under the sun, where justice should be found, and it's not there. The preacher has us looking in the one place in God's land, in the place where God's people live, where justice and righteous rulings should be found, the holy courthouse. And what does he find? Wickedness. The courts in ancient Israel were to be the best in the world, as God himself had decreed the standards of righteousness and justice that were to be found there. But sadly, if you know the story of Israel in the Bible, uh, the, the, the Israel, the courts were corrupt. And for hundreds of years since, the same fate has struck every courthouse in the world. I'm not saying that the court system in the U.S. is on the same level as, say, the court systems in Honduras or North Korea. But every day in America, there are guilty people who go free and innocent people who are condemned. So what are we to do? The way of life under the sun tempts us to to just jump right in, join in, capitalize on the injustice in the world. I mean, if we look at our own hearts, do we not all have a tendency to want to tip the scales of justice when things can be done in our favor? It's a dog-eat-dog world after all. And so if... And so if, if the one with the most ruthless divorce attorney wins... 
Well, then you pay top dollar to carve out that pound of flesh from the one you once pledged to love till death do you part. This is the reality in ancient Israel when Ecclesiastes was written. It was a time of great prosperity and international trade. But sadly, the nation did not live up to the standards that the Lord their God had given them. The law of God said not to cheat the foreigner by using dishonest scales. They did. The law of God said they were not to bribe a judge in order to take away land from a widow. They did. And because of this, those who were suffering injustice were living in despair. So, under the sun, apart from God, there seems to be no hope. That's the insight. Now, what for the action? What does the preacher do? Well, you know, he actually preaches to himself an old treasured sermon. Verse 17, I said in my heart, we need to do this, don't we? I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. The preacher lifts his eyes above the, this life under the sun he knows something that, that, that changes everything. No matter how bad it looks, God is on his throne. And God has a time coming when he will judge every matter and every work of man. So the preacher preaches himself this old sermon that God is on his throne. God sees everything that is happening. And he will judge injustice in its time. From the smallest to the greatest injustice, God will judge all. Now, this should be both a comfort and a concern. It's a comfort to know that in the end, nobody gets away with anything. Nothing. But it's also a concern because, is it not true? We're included in this justice from heaven. God has a time scheduled where he will judge all. And the question is, are you okay with God being the judge? And are you okay with his timing? You see, for now, the, the wicked prosper. And the poor, they continue to be oppressed. So if God is good, why does he delay his justice? What we see next is that God's delay is actually a grace towards mankind. We see this beginning in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast are the same. As the one dies, so the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the, over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. My friends, God wants us to look at ourselves. And what does he want us to understand? That in some ways we're really no better off than the beasts. Just as an animal dies and his body returns to earth, so too human beings. My friends, in regard to this, we're no better off than that dead opossum on the side of the road. See, that's the vanity of life that we read of in verse 19, and it's all throughout Ecclesiastes. I think that phrase is like 31 times. Now, remember the English word vanity, we've talked about this a few weeks ago, is the Hebrew word hebel. And hebel means like vapor, mist, or, or mere breath. Hebel is what happens when you drop a, a drop of water on a hot skillet. It's gone. 
The preacher is continually reminding us that life under the sun is, is hebel. And there's no escaping it except by a work of God's grace. And even then, it comes after we die. Together, the preacher wants us to see that God will judge every human being and that our lives are short. And God is testing us to see if we will live with our hearts. Listen, will we live with our hearts treasuring this dog-eat-dog, shalom-vandalized earth? Or will we live with our eyes and our hope and our hearts focused on heaven? In a real and true way, the preacher is calling us to live out Moses' prayer in Psalm 90. No doubt he knew it. Where Moses pleaded, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's Psalm 90, verse 12, if you're taking notes. You know, Trappist monks have a daily ritual that they go through in order to number their days rightly. Trappist monks always live with an open grave on their property. And every day they visit the empty grave and they peer over the edge and they ponder their own mortality. And when someone dies, they lower him into the grave and cover him with dirt and immediately dig a new grave in order to start the ritual all over again, never knowing for certain who will be the next one to die. Ecclesiastes is asking this of all of us. Now, Instead of digging your own grave in your own yard, there's probably an ordinance against that. Um, how about we just start noticing the roadkill? I know that's a weird thing to do. That's my pastor's application in his sermon. As I'm driving down the road, notice the dead opossum. But seriously, every time you see a dead animal on the side of the road, we must think of our own coming death and then look up to heaven and see our God on his throne. So, first we're shown the prevalence of injustice. Next is the prevalence of oppression. Now, if injustice is what tends to happen inside the courtrooms, oppression is what we find everywhere else in the world. In chapter 4, verse 1, the preacher shows us what he observed. He said, And I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. People all over the world are suffering terribly. They cry themselves to sleep at night, and there's no one to comfort them. Add to that, it's the oppressors who have all the power. You see what's going on? That The preacher is actually... So beautiful. He's getting under the skin of the oppressed. He's able to empathize with them. He feels their pain. He longs to help. He longs to bring relief. But the oppressors have too much power. Oh, that we who are alive in Christ would walk on this earth with eyes of comfort for the oppressed. Do you know that last Friday, South Sudan celebrated its 10-year anniversary of independence. It is the world's youngest country, but there's so little to celebrate. This oil-rich country is mired in war that has killed over 400,000 of its people, and the country is entrenched in corruption in which a few powerful men at the top profit, 
while at least eight million citizens are totally dependent upon foreign aid to survive. But oppression isn't just in foreign lands. Consider the case of one of my former employees, Assad. In the 1990s, I started a computer business, and one of my, uh, one of my employees was uh, a Pakistani man who had recently graduated from the University of South Alabama in Moline. Now, how he got there, I have no idea, but that's his story. Uh, Assad worked as our in-house accountant. He did a great job. We paid him a fair salary. Now, when I sold my business, the new owner used Assad's visa status. We had him as a, uh, we were taking care of his work visa. He used that visa status to oppress him. He cut Assad's pay in half, half, and forced him to take on additional responsibilities. When the preacher looks at all the oppression under the sun, he laments. And he concludes, it, it's, it's better to never have been born. Look at verses 2 and 3. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still here. And then he takes it up a notch. But better, is, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Listen, the preacher is saying that the, that, 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 that the shalom of God has been so vandalized that we shouldn't be surprised when people regret even being born. And no doubt some of you have felt that way at times. The weight of this world and all its brokenness, it just presses in. It becomes oppressive. And you, and you begin to think, why even go on? This is what the preacher observes, and the action he takes is what? It's compassion. He looks at how so many suffer oppression, and he notes twice that they had no one to comfort them. The Lord Jesus had a similar lament, perhaps you remember, in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, the, the preacher is calling us to stop what we're doing and survey the world we're living in. To have eyes like our Lord's that sees the suffering and oppression everywhere in the earth. On one of my missions trips, when I was a youth director back in St. Louis, we, we went to Honduras every year for quite a few years. And there's one time I took this guy who had been in our youth group, and, but he, um, he was living in L.A. He had a really enviable job. He was working at Boston Consulting Group, pretty prestigious gig, right? I asked him at the last minute to, to come on the trip because my Spanish-speaking uh, uh, dude leader uh, became unavailable. And if you know, my Spanish skills aren't all that good. So... Um, I was the vice president in the Spanish club in high school, though, but <laughs> that was just for the sopapillas and the girls, so. So prior to joining Boston Consulting Group, Chris um, spent a few years in Mexico City as a campus crusade uh, leader there. 
And then um, he came to Honduras and it had a last, lasting impact on him, but it also had an impact on his younger brother who was in my youth group and later moved to New York City and he was leading an internal hedge fund at Goldman Sachs, maybe you've heard of that company. He was a young and rising star there. But Chris and Will, they, they began dreaming about starting a company in Honduras that alleviates the oppression. Check this out. So Chris Lee's Boston Consulting Group. I don't know why I'm getting so choked up. And, and Will turned down a promotion and an advancement to move over into London. And they found a company called Tegu Toys. It's a magnetic wooden block toy company. Um, they use environmentally um, environmentally sound timber harvesting protocols and they employ well over 200 Hondurans and they provide them with more than a living wage and it all happened because like just a last minute like volunteer to go on a trip and also added to that a desire in these young men's lives to, to live for Christ in this shalom vandalized world so let me ask you has, has the Lord given you eyes to see the oppression? Has he given you a longing to do something about it? Please understand, I'm, I'm just as convicted as you are. You know, I know it can be hard living out here in the Hamptons to develop this, right? You know, I, I found it helpful. I actually subscribed to this newsletter from a group called Voice of the Martyrs. Maybe some of you know about it. Voice of the Martyrs. I recommend it to you. Every month I get a newsletter. I just found this on my desk in my office, so that's why I haven't opened it and read it. But the Voice of the Martyrs, they, they scour the earth, and they look for areas in which there's great oppression, and they tell you stories, stories of great persecution, but also stories of, of great hope, so that what? So that we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So the preacher has shown us his insight into the prevalence of injustice and oppression. And then now he moves to a matter that's really close to home, right? So think about it. Isn't it true? When we think of, when we think of injustice, when we think of oppression, it seems like big systemic things that we're really not a part of, although we do like to tip the scales. Um, he changes the topic into something else he observes. And it's something that none of us can claim to be free from. It's the sin that actually leads to injustice and oppression. The preacher now shows us our greed and envy. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Then I saw all the, all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. <laughs> you know, and, and here we thought that keeping up with the Joneses was a modern day phenomenon. It's true, right? From the moment we're toddlers and point at someone else's ice cream cone and say, Mommy, I want one, it's there, envy. Without the grace of God operating in our lives, envy and greed fester and they, it grows as we get older. And do you see envy, greed, this coveting? Um, these are really deep heart issues that we all must come to own. So I look at my own heart and I see, I see envy there. 
I hear a, a friend announces that she's going on a trip to Italy. My heart beats with envy. You know this, don't you? That's just an example from this past week. Listen, the preacher wants to bring this sermon close to home. Understand this. The, 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 the problem with the world isn't other people. The problem with the world is you and me. As Voltaire famously quipped, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. By the way, you're the snowflake. Or like I say, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The preacher is saying that when we live by feeding our envy, it's a vanity. He calls it a striving after the wind. And once again, we've covered this before. But the word striving in Hebrew is the word for herding or, or shepherding. Try herding the wind. Good luck, right? We humans desperately try to herd happiness our way. But like herding the wind, good luck. Life under the sun, it's hebel. It's vanity. It's a mist. It's a drop of water on a hot skillet. Now, the preacher addresses one way we can approach this. How about I just leave the rat race? What's the use, right? How about I don't work hard and instead sit on my hands, maybe buy one of those tiny houses and move to the hills? So he states a proverb in verse 5. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Not a very pleasant image. Those who say, I'm not going to work with my hands, in the end prove themselves foolish, for they end up with no food, no savings, and they die. Enough on that. So that's not an option for us either. So, so neither dropping out of the rat race or jumping in is the solution, but what is the third way? The way of God's people is described in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. When kids go trick-or-treating, they often approach the door with both hands cupped, right? Two cupped hands can hold more than double just one hand. Envy leads to two-hand toiling upon this earth. None of us likes to admit it, but we tend to live lives cupped with two hands cupped as we rush out the door or we sit down to our Zoom call. Take a second to think it through. Do you see this two-hands-cupped approach to life? How do we fight this? Remember the whole point of Ecclesiastes. The preacher wants us to come to the realization that life under the sun, apart from God, is hevel. It's vanity. It's a mist. You, you live a few years with envious hearts trying to herd happiness, which you'll never find, and then you die. Listen, friends, our text says that we are being tested by God. Remember reading that? Listen, God is testing us. 
Will we continue to take bites out of Eden's apple? Or will we begin to lift our heads above the sun to our God, our creator, our sustainer and redeemer? The writer wants us to feel the angst. If there is no God above who can redeem us and return shalom to this world, then we are all toast. Do you understand this? I know it's not a happy conversation. I get it. Remember, as I began the sermon series, I said that the book of Ecclesiastes is like a punch in the gut. But I think we need that. Until you see your need of God to redeem you in this world, then you will not welcome God's grace into your life, which is the only thing that can redeem you or return shalom to earth. And yet we say, no, thank you. I'll get my two handfuls. This morning, Ecclesiastes has shown us what we already know is true. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. But there is help for those of us who live in this shalom-vandalized earth. The same God who has set a time in which he will judge every matter under the sun, including all the sin in your life, he has done something amazing. In love, not envy, Jesus, the divine, holy, pure Son of God, left heaven and entered into this shalom-vandalized world. Listen, no human being has ever suffered more injustice and oppression than Jesus. The innocent Son of God in human flesh was rejected by the very people he came to save. The courts on earth, they conducted a wicked sham trial. The high priest actually said, it is better that one man dies for the nation. How ironic that was. The ancient prophet Isaiah described Jesus' death on the cross for us. He said this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. No envy there. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The judgment we deserve fell on him for us. So, Please be amazed by this truth. God's very son entered into this dog-eat-dog world, a world full of envy and oppression and injustice. And he took upon himself not only our sin, but check this out. Isaiah tells us, surely he has borne what? Our griefs and carried our sorrows. Listen, all the times that, that we arrogantly point up to heaven and say, God, if you're there, why don't you do something? He has answered us emphatically, I have. And so one day the Son of God will return, he's promised that, to reestablish shalom on earth. So take this to heart. The message of the gospel isn't just forgiveness of sin, it's it's 
the promise of the return of shalom, that which you long for deep in your soul. Until then, we live in this dog-eat-dog world as those who love our Lord and Savior, and we seek to honor Christ with our lives, and we live with love and compassion. And not only do we number our days in humility, but we entrust all our days to our Lord. And we live with a longing for our Savior to return. And until that day, we pray with Moses. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I think in speaking for myself, I can also speak for your people that we are in need of humility. We are in need of being reminded that we are but dust and we shall return to dust. And that this life apart from you really is, it's a vapor, it's a mist. But with you in our lives, that changes everything. It turns us into people who not just have a hope, but we're able to bring this hope into this world. That now is our calling, and we thank you for that. We thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.